Hello, hello. We welcome you today to Love is Spoken Queer, Gospel Topics, LGBTQ plus voices. I'm Dustin Larson. And I'm Renee Hernandez. And Renee, we have reached the, <laughs> I think, the most difficult topic to talk about as a queer person of faith, especially a queer member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So because it's such a difficult and complex topic, I'm going to give you the opportunity to bypass your status update so we can get right into the discussion. Or if you'd like to share your status update, you can. I'm going to bypass mine, but I'm I'm going to give you the option. Let's do it. Let's jump into this. Okay. So first of all, listeners out there, we are going to get right on into this. But first, what do we always have to do, whether we have a status update or not? It's time for our high you everybody. Yes. And we couldn't we couldn't have a podcast without a cheesy lead in and our haiku hallelujah. Even though we are skipping our SAS updates to get right into the topic at hand, we are still going to do this haiku hallelujah. And so we are going to be discussing, of course, the family, a proclamation to the world through the queer perspective of future. Renee, who would you like to go first? I'm just giving you all the choices today. So it's like, is it the red pill or the blue pill? Which do you choose? Who do you want to go first as far as haiku hallelujah? I'm going to say, why don't you go first and you decide, are you choosing the blue pill or the red pill? Dustin? Well, no, I just, I just, the, the, that was my choice was like, I was either the red pill or oh, since I'm wearing blue, listeners out there, you can't see I'm wearing blue and you're, you've got red. I see a little bit of red accent. So there we go. That was perfect. Like I didn't even know we were going to be dressed like this or looking like this. So my metaphor and reference is perfect. So <laughs> I was the blue pill. You were the red pill. You want me to go first or do you want to go first? Which do you choose? Blue, That's pill. blue pill. So I'm going first. Okay. So here we go. Listeners, if you don't know what that's from, it's from The Matrix. Which, which is rated R. I was just going to say, which is rated R. So watch watch with caution. Maybe wait for it to be on TNT or TBS where it's just MA. I think at that point, back then, rated R back then isn't rated R today. So edited on TV, it's probably about a PG-13. So yeah, so if you want to watch The Matrix, I, I guess there's like a fourth one coming out. But anyways, off the topic, <laughs> here we go. I will be talking about, or, or do you have something to say about that? I was going to say about The Matrix. So my dad let me watch it, um, which was, it wasn't my first rated, I think it was one of my first rated R movies, but it wasn't rated R really, I think. But me and my dad went to watch the second one because he really liked it. And the first thing we saw was a complete sex scene. So we walked out. So forewarn, it does get sketchier by the second movie if you decide to go <laughs> follow the franchise. And it, it, I think it's actually relevant, too, that that came up because isn't the writer and creator, aren't they transgender? Oh, I, I don't know anything about The Matrix. After my dad walked out, I've never seen any of them since. I'm pretty sure they are. Let me look at that throughout our discussion, or maybe during one of our breaks, I'll look it up and it'll probably be in our calling or whatever. And I'll, I'll follow back up listeners, but I'm pretty sure it is. And a recent, I think, interview with Keanu Reeves just came out too, that they wanted to have a transgender character or one of the characters was supposed to be transgender in the movie, but society back in the day wasn't ready for it sort of thing. But anyways, I'll do my research during one of our breaks, or I guess our only break, and then we will <laughs> we will confirm whether that is the case. But anyways, we keep dragging on and, I, and that's my fault because I go into different tangents. But here we go. The family, a proclamation to the world, to the queer perspective of future. Here's my haiku Luya. I believe that the Children are our future, and love will lead the way. <laughs> did you get it. Did you get the the reference I had in there? I never get any of your uh, references. So I'm gonna it, say no. It's Whitney. I believe the children are our future. Treat them yep. well and let them lead the way. <laughs> Give them all the beauty they possess inside. Give them a sense of pride. <laughs> but anyways, that's what I was. That was what I was going. That was part of my haiku hallelujah. But I am excited to hear yours through the queer perspective of future. All right, here we go with mine. Future unwritten. Unwind yourself from the known and begin anew. Yay. Yes, yes, yes. The rest is still unwritten. (laughs) (laughs) Feel the rain on your skin. You know that song, right? Okay, I was like, I know that one. No one else can feel it for you. Only you can let it in. No one else, no one else can feel it. Uh, I can't remember the rest, but the rest is like, the rest is still unwritten. That's the name oh, of the song is, is unwritten. And who sings that? I feel like I... Ah, it's um, 
well, you just made me forget. You just made me forget. Um, Can't blame me. Your memory's just sketchy. It was it was early two thousands. Two K. It was the theme song for the Hills and Natasha Bedingfield. There we go. The reality TV show on MTV, Laguna I've Beach. Never really watched reality. Is, Let the rain fall down and wake my dreams. Let it wash. That was from was Laguna a show Beach. like that. Wasn't it called like the OC or something? That took place on the the beach. real OC. The real OC. So the OC happened. That TV show happened, and then MTV had a reality TV show following teenagers called Laguna Beach, and it was the real OC. And then the spinoff of Laguna Beach was The Hills because Elsie or Lauren, who was the main character from Laguna Beach, went off to go live and work in the Hollywood Hills. So it was called The Hills. And that lasted for about six seasons. Uh, that was that was my early 2K, like college life sort of thing. Like it, it was it came out when when was it? They were like a few years older than us. So I think they were the I was the class of 2006. I would say they were the class of 2002. So it was around that time. So you can just think of it. But college, that was my jam. Me and my best friend, Lindsay, (laughs) we were obsessed with the Hills. I think the season finale or the final season was my junior slash senior year of of college. So that was around like 2010-ish, 2009, 2010, I think is when they had the final season. And then there was a spinoff of the Hills called The City, which was Whitney, who I always thought I was Whitney. And then we she came to the city, which is New York city. And so that only lasted a couple seasons, but anyways, <laughs> that's where that comes from. Unwritten by Natasha Bedingfield. That is what your haiku hallelujah inspired me to. So both of our haiku hallelujahs were pretty much inspired by inspirational songs without uh, you, you knowing it, without it you, without you knowing it for me. But anyways, yeah, mine had no attachments to the Hills. Is that what it was called? The, yes, the hills. No attachment. No attachment. But but I'm glad you made a connection. Now back to our regular scheduled show. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so back to exactly back 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 again. Uh, so here we go. Brene, as a queer person of faith, when you first hear the words future or word one singular, the word future, what first comes to mind? The idea of what is to come, right? And for some reason, I can never think of the future without reflecting on the past of like being able to see the future. Because for a lot of, especially as a person of a queer person, a spiritual queer person, makes me think of the individuals who are my shoes in the past and I am their future and how far we've come. And so I can only imagine what the future will look like. So it's the potential of what can be along with the struggle of what's going to happen to get there, you know? So that's what I think of. How about yourself, Dustin? What comes to your mind? So thank you for sharing that because I love how you said that you can't think about the future without thinking about the past. And that brought up a quote that I once heard the owner of the Stonewall Inn say, uh, I believe his name is Kurt Kelly. And he was talking on a documentary and he said, our community won't have a future if we don't know our past. And I thought that was really, really inspirational because it's true. If we don't know where we've come as queer people and as queer people of faith, we won't have a future because we'll just, I, I mentioned this on last podcast too, like we'll just continue to complete these cycles of intolerance and ignorance and all that sort of stuff. So I'm really glad that you brought that up because we can't have a future if we forget the past. I, I love that. And that's kind of what I was thinking about too, when it comes to future is for a queer people of faith, it's the unknown, which is both scary and kind of exhilarating at the same time. Queer people in general outside of the church, their future is unknown. And then so that means queer people within the church are futures unknown. So that's something that we can always kind of bind together with in our, our queer community that kind of gives us a little bit of communion and a little bit of stability is no matter if you're in or outside the church, no matter if you're religious or not, us as a community, our future is unknown. And which means it could be whatever we make of it if we put the effort into it. So I like how it kind of gives you that butterfly in your stomach, like when you're in a roller coaster or something like that too, where it's scary, but at the same time, it gives you the energy to act, to do things, to make the future what you want it to be and provide a future for those coming up behind you. Because that's another thing too. We are a community of paying it forward by looking back and that sort of thing. Like, I just love there's this dichotomy. It's full circle. Like, I think it's really about like the plan of salvation too, like kind of how we have to have a future looking to the past. And it's just this 
endless cycle, like the same thing. We began in heaven with our heavenly parents. We come to earth and the whole goal is to full circle back as a more fully well-rounded person. So now I'm seeing all these cylindrical or whatever sort of metaphors that are coming. First, it was inspirational songs. Now it's (laughs) circular (laughs) sort of things. But anyways, so we've reached the topic that it's it's a hard topic to end with. Like I'm surprised that they shoved in all of these hard topics to discuss towards the end of the year, but it, they're topics that need to be talked about. And I know this is one that is is a topic that you've you've kind of been hesitant to talk about, or you've just it's just always on the forefront of your mind when it comes to your experience as a queer person of faith. So I talked to you about before we started recording, and I, you agreed to this. So I think we're going to go through the proclamation of the family or the family, a proclamation to the world. I guess their, their titles are interchangeable. We're going to go paragraph by paragraph, kind of like what we do in Voices of the Restoration. And we're going to just discuss it and break it apart because I think that's the best way to really discuss this. Because if you start to pick and choose from all of the place, it's taken out of context. It's not a fully realized thought that's happening. And you could always kind of use it to your your agenda sort of thing, whether it's for or against the proclamation, like whether you're for it or against it. If you just pick pieces out of it, it's it, you could kind of manipulate what you want the other person to get out of it. So I, I think if we just go straight through it and kind of discuss certain things, I think we can have a really great conversation and kind of face some of our fears head on. And I hope that it's a very positive discussion because I know this topic is kind of, it was not kind of, it is a very sensitive topic because of how it's been used. And so I think we should just dive right in. But before we do, I was thinking of some ways to kind of discuss this and some sort of tips for listeners out there when it comes to the proclamation of the family and how to go about talking about it, whether you are a person of faith, whether you're not a person of faith, whether you're a queer person, whether you're a queer person, but basically anyone who's going to talk about this proclamation, here's some tips that I feel you should really keep in mind when going into studying for a very well-rounded conversation. The first tip I have is God's words should never be used as weapons. I don't think I have to go more into explaining what I mean by that, but this proclamation, I think I've seen it the most in in tandem with like the Leviticus and all those things from like the Bible, I think this is the main go-to for members of the church to use as a weapon against the LGBTQ community, which it shouldn't be. And there's a there's a thing in the manual that I'll get to about maybe people should rethink the use of it as a weapon um, because it, it wasn't ever meant to be that way. And then the other tip that I have is I believe This came out in 1995. I think this is when it was written and presented. I want to say it was in 1995. So that is a long time ago. That is almost like, what, 23 years ago or something like that, or 24 years ago? (gasps) Did I do math right? I did the math right. Oh, I didn't do the math right. 26 years ago. You were close. Oh, 26, whatever. It was a long time ago. So between then and now, there is much, 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 much more knowledge surrounding gender, sexuality, all the above. And what constitutes a quote-unquote family that we have learned since the writing of this. Gender doesn't mean the same thing it did back in 1995. What a family, traditional quote-unquote family looks like isn't the same thing as what it was back in 1995. So I think using this document as like a set in stone shouldn't be the case for it because we have learned so much as a society, as a humans, since the writing of this, that we have a lot more things that could inform our reading of this particular document. And I think we'll bring that in as we we talk about it at the same time. And then also one last little tip. I just could think of three tips right now because I want, again, I keep talking too much. So I'll give you some time to talk after this too, but I just have a lot on my mind regarding this. My third tip is that this is a singular resource that was written by the church. And I feel like anything in regards to the complex topics of sexuality, gender, and all of the above, we need to include resources outside of the church in the discussion if we are going to be looking at sources like this as part of the discussion. We can't solely rely on church-related documents when it comes to something as complex as sexuality or gender, because we know it's biased. It may have been revelation from from God, but it is through human 
minds, mouths, hands, all that sort of thing. So there is going to be a bias that goes into creating something like this. So I just want to really encourage listeners out there and we'll get to it when we when we talk about it in pieces is when you're talking about stuff like this go outside the church as well as inside the church and i i might even say go outside the church first to have a better understanding so that way you can more fully understand what you're reading from stuff inside the church so that's just my thing so anyways renee i'm done talking right now how about we just start off reading the declamation the declamation. <laughs> See, there's a declaration and the proclamation in one word. So uh, that's what I'm just saying. I'm going to call them the declamations one, two, and of the family. But anyways, Renee, how about you start off with the first paragraph? All right, boss. So I'm going to start from the header, actually. The family, a proclamation to the world, the first presidency and council of the 12 apostles of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We, the first presidency and the council of the 12 apostles of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, solemnly proclaim that marriage between a man and a woman is ordained of God and that the family is central to the creator's plan for the eternal destiny of his children. So do you have any thoughts so far on that? I I have a couple of thoughts, but I'd like to hear yours first. I'll be honest for me, this first part isn't really what invokes my, um, it does invoke the sense of like, right. The, the marriage between a man and a woman is ordained of God and it doesn't, and that the family is central to the creator's plan, but it doesn't. So for me at that point, it doesn't put too much limitations. Like I, when I, and again, I'm coming from the point of view of a convert that when I joined the church, I kind of already knew that that was the church of stands, um, in regards to how things would play out. And I was hoping to marry a woman. And that's not how my life has played out since then. And so for me, it doesn't evoke any sort of thoughts beyond that understanding that for a lot of our other queer individuals, this can be a very heavy wording because it makes it feel like there's no place for anyone else in Heavenly Father's plan. And I definitely disagree with that part. But for me itself, it does not. But I'm curious to hear about where you, what you got from it. I think I have the same sort of thought process you did. Like, it's not technically excluding anybody at this point in time. You could read it that way by saying only mention of marriage between a man and a woman is excluding. But it doesn't say that other marriages aren't ordained by God. It's just calling out this one specific marriage. Like it doesn't say only a marriage between a man and a woman is ordained by God. It simply says marriage between a man and a woman is ordained of God. And then the family is central to the creator's plan for the eternal destiny of all. So that basically that's what it is, is this particular form of marriage is ordained by God. That doesn't mean others can't be in the future. It just means in this moment in time when this was written, that's what they wanted to get across to us. And then the family is central and eternal. Like I'm on, I'm all good. I'm on board. Like I feel like nothing's exclusionary at this point, unless you kind of want to go there. But at this point in time, you can argue that it doesn't exclude families. It's just specifically calls out one particular form of marriage. It's kind of funny that you mentioned like that it could potentially change or something could be different. Because something for our audience, especially if you're an ally and not living the experience yourself or from a different faith, there's a lot of queer members in the church that are hoping that this proclamation will change and the church will change and that marriage will be allowed in the church. So that is a field of, I don't want to say, it sounds very intellectual when I say a field of study, but I'm going to say a, 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 a grouping of the queer experience in the church of that is like, that's what they desire, right? That's what they would like to happen one day. So, um, so I, I'm glad you mentioned that because it prompted that thought to share, right, for those listening. But do you want to read the next one? I'm curious to hear what you have in this one. Yeah, so I'm going to read this one twice because this is the first. This is the first paragraph where I kind of have a problem because they're very specific in their language, and they're vague other places. Like they use the alternative language elsewhere in the same paragraph that they use the exclusionary language, which doesn't make sense to me. Like if you used it one time, why don't you just continue to use the language because it's inclusion of the people reading it. But so I'll read it one way as written, and then I'll read it the updated way, very, very minorly tweaked, which makes it inclusive of everyone reading it. So here it goes as written. It says all human beings, male and female are created in the image of God. Each is a beloved spirit, son or daughter of heavenly parents, and as such, each has a divine nature and destiny. Gender is an essential characteristic of individual, premortal, mortal, and eternal identity and purpose. So I rewrote everything up until the gender part because I want to talk about that separately. So this is how I rewrote it. And it's literally omitting and changing a couple of things. 
All human beings are created in the image of God. Each is a beloved spirit child of heavenly parents, and as such, each has a divine nature and destiny. Omitting male and female makes everything more inclusive. And then by saying children or child rather than son and daughter makes it a lot more inclusive as well. And I don't see why they chose to say son or daughter when at the very end of the previous paragraph, they say children. So this kind of lets you see the agenda of this document kind of seep through when they do certain things like that. So me as a queer person of faith, when I see something like that, I just rewrite it and see it how I think God wants it to be used, like how he intended it to be used. And it's not really changing doctrine. It's still male and female. That's still included in everything that we're talking about by saying children instead of son and daughter that's still getting the point across. It just opens it up to more people reading it. So that's what I think about that very first part. And then the gender thing, again, I think it's all of how you look at it. Like, I think they included this in there to kind of say gender is determined in the premortal existence and there's no changing it. Well, if you look at gender nowadays, where gender is a spectrum, maybe non-binary was determined in the pre-existence, And you're continuing that now here. They don't define gender here as male and female. They just say gender. And now we know that gender is like a social construct here. So it's almost like, however, I'm expressing my gender on earth. God knew about it before I did. And I have full privilege and authority to continue expressing it. I know that's not how they intended it in this document, but if you read it from that way, it makes me feel a little bit better because they don't define gender. I know what they mean by gender, but they kind of miss the mark now that we know that gender means something a lot different than it did back then. I have to ask a clarifying question for you, actually. And and don't, and the, please don't, I hope I don't come off condescending with this, but I actually think you're using gender incorrectly as well. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. How are you using gender right now. Well, no, see, like I'm using it as like the way of you expressing your, now, now you've got me compliment. How, how should gender be used? And let's see if that's how I was using it. So in literature or, or in the context of the queer community, your sex assigned at birth is usually connotated to male and female. Your gender is how you choose to express yeah. that. Right. But in your wording, you kept saying gender as if it was male and female. Gender well, is is, is genderless, right? It, it's a construct. You give it meaning. So here the church is, is using it incorrectly as mm-hmm. a reference to sex given at, assigned at birth. And they use it interchangeably. And that's, that's actually a style of old writing, right? Because like you said, you mentioned there's been a lot of development in language and how we've become more specialized with words. So if you think about it, like you said, this document doesn't really stand the test of time in the sense of like the secular world, but in the world of how the church views gender and sex, it has technically stood the test of time, if you will. Does that make sense? Yeah. And thank you for correcting me because I think I started out using gender correctly, but then I I got caught up into it. But yeah, so I think gender here, the church is using it as if it was determining sex. Like there's just two sexual binaries that you could choose from. And so then I was trying to say by using the word gender that we know now, That's just how your expression, and maybe that was preordained in the afterlife too, not saying whether you're male or female, but how your being or your spirit is to express itself. Like that's going to be, I'm all okay with that, like that being determined and then continuing on because that's your essence, that's your being, that's who you are. It's kind of funny because actually technically here, um, if you were to read it from the secular perspective, what, how gender is currently being defined. And you read that sentence as gender is an essential characteristic is basically saying that if you go by the binary standard of gender, wearing a skirt is a essential characteristic of individual, premortal, mortal, and eternal identity. That's what this is saying. If you would say sex is an essential mm-hmm. characteristic of individual, premortal existence, then you're saying your standard as a female or male comes into the born existence. So this is kind of funny because they're basically saying dudes wearing pants, girls wearing skirts is an essential characteristic. So we as a church... Are, are, it's kind of like a funny statement in the secular world, but in in this in, in the church, this for me is one of the first times when I read this and my brain's like all full of that information that I find it the most interesting because along with that, and you actually brought this up, one of the resources that they provide for talking about this is they refer you to Elder Dallinch Oak's talk, Truths and the Plan. 
which was in the November 2018 enzyme, I believe. And there he goes on to state further what gender is and how the church believes gender, again, used in the sense of sex assigned at birth, not how we use gender now, right? It was interesting, but he makes a remark in his uh, talk that I found really interesting. It said, expertise in one field should not be taken as expertise on truth in other subjects. And he was referencing the idea that just because someone like myself is knowledgeable about higher ed education, I'm not, you shouldn't suddenly be taking my advice for what medicine to take for whatever you have, right? Because I don't, I'm not a doctor. And so I found it interesting as a spiritual leader for him to be making decisions that are considered biological, to be giving input on something biological, right? And I don't know, I don't believe Elder Oaks has a medical background. Do you know? He's a lawyer. So his words are very carefully chosen to push forward an agenda. So I don't think, I I know he knows he's using, pretty sure he's using the words incorrectly. And I think he knows he's using the words incorrectly, but he's, he's using it to get a point across. Like well, he's, for I, me, think, I think it's yeah. less that he's using it correctly or correctly. It's that statement that he's speaking in a way that he is saying that he's the absolute voice in this. And the church itself has come to say that there's things like intersex that we do not understand, which is different than trans being transgender. Right. So intersex is the idea that when you're born, your parents, decide whether you're going to be a man or male or female, because the doctors can't assign you a, a sex at birth because you're technically both, right? So they force one or the other. At that point, the church has literally come out that that is the understanding. We do not know how it plays out. And so it's interesting because this document contradicts a lot of the new sciences that have come out to better include people that the church cannot exclude, mm-hmm. at least especially with this paragraph when we're talking about, and this is of course moving away from the transgender experience, which I personally think that this statement alone erases their experience completely because while I appreciate that you removed male and female and said all human beings are created in image because you and I identify as cis males, we feel appropriate to do that. But when you do that, in general, transgender individuals don't feel included at all. It's like a privilege that we have to be able to exclude this where they weren't even considered at all, right? Like in the sense of like their experience is was already erased just by having male and female in there. And I found that very interesting because they weren't included in that journey and what it means to discover your sex, basically, and not just your gender uh, expression. But I just went on a little bit of rant. I apologize. No, no, so you're fine. You're fine because it's like I said earlier, and this is exactly the point that I want to talk about is because in the, and I think it's really, 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 really concerned. Well, not concerning, just kind of, it raises my eyebrows a little bit that they don't talk about gender and all this stuff in the early parts of the come follow me manual. They wait until it's at the family study for home evening, which means children are going to be involved in this. And I'm not saying that these topics shouldn't be taught with children, but this is children at an age where they're very impressionable. And some of the children or, or even like tweens or teens are starting to go through phases where they might be questioning their sexual orientation or their gender or anything like that. So you, so the two sources that they provide in this little section that says gender is an essential characteristic, it basically has you look at truth in the plan, which is Elder Oaks's talk, and then also same-sex attraction in the church's resources, which I think are two of the most dangerous <laughs> resources to visit when you're an impressionable youth trying to figure out things that you're doing because it calls into question your worth because right off the bat, you're told you're not enough or there's something wrong with you or being different is basically damnation. So I this is where my my tip is to go outside of the church first when you're talking about or researching topics as complex as sexual orientation, gender identity, gender expression, all that stuff. So that way children or youth or whoever is questioning, they have a safe space to fully research, understand, explore what it could mean to be what they are. And then they, once they kind of have that sort of workshop, I'm not saying that they have to have it completely work through, but for them to get a safe space of it's okay to explore these sort of ideas without feeling like you're damned, 
then to come and bring it into the church resources and see if there's ways that you can reconcile certain things. But for you to start off with the church resources are is really, really, I think, a dangerous place to start because like we've mentioned before, their resources, especially when it comes to sexuality and gender and all that stuff, are really contradictory. Like we've already seen that they use gender and sex interchangeably, which they aren't. They don't mean the same thing, though they're trying to make it the same thing to kind of fit what they're they're trying to say. And then even with same-sex attraction, they flip-flop in the very beginning. Like I'll even say the overview for same-sex attraction. It says same-sex attraction refers to emotional, physical, or sexual attraction to the person of the same gender. So they've already flipped. They 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 it's in the title, same sex. But it's regarding gender now. So now they're already flip-flopping and interchanging terms that we know now aren't interchangeable. <laughs> so it's it's just a really dangerous place to start off with. And I'm not even going to get into the transgender sections of the handbook because even that is fully contradictory as well. Like they're saying that so we're supposed to support and love everyone in the church, including our transgender members. And that includes using their pronouns. But then later on, it says that we are not supposed to support medical or social transitioning. And part of social transitioning is acknowledging and using proper proper pronouns. So the point is, when it comes to topics regarding sexuality, gender, all that sort of stuff, I advise to go outside of the church first and then come back and review what the church has to say. I, I think they're a very, very scary place to get all your knowledge from in regards to these topics. I I have to say that I I disagree a little bit with you actually on this because I do, I don't agree totally with um, what the church has written. I do agree with you on that. But I do agree with the fact that they say that sometimes going outside can be its own level of danger, especially with youth. I wish I could say that the internet is a great resource. You talked about safe space, but the internet is not a safe space for as uh, young uh, kids or adults, uh, young adults exploring their queerness, it can take you through to predators, uh, potentially getting misinformation about your own body, the way you should move forward. So there's like a way I want to say that, yes, it's important to look outside of the church because I think there's a lot of valuable information there. True. I don't know if I would say that's the first place you should go to before the church. I feel like finding, I almost would say, find someone in your life that you can trust and that you think will help you navigate. That would be my advice, who's already done it. And they can help you avoid some of the pitfalls that exist, both reading the church literature and reading the internet's literature. Because I don't think navigating either of those blind is going to do anyone any good. So that's personally, it's my own thinking on that. Just because I, I was that kid that used the internet to explore and it didn't really provide me with anything but porn. And then that, that created a different line of thinking for me. And then that became a form of my own education, which was not necessarily a healthy one. And so I hear what you're saying, but I would say, take that advice with caution. And yeah, that's what I would say. Yeah, no, I guess I should clarify what I meant. I meant like guided, like outside the, I didn't mean like just type in gay into the internet and there you go, just have fun. I meant like, look for resources like PFLAG or the human rights campaign, or even Planned Parenthood, like all these places that are scientifically backed or, or, or there's studies behind them or, or stuff like that. So it's just, it's one of those things where it's not so biased of like, if you feel anything other than your sex assigned at birth, like, or if you feel like expressing anything other than your quote unquote male, so you have to do like that sort of thing. There's these sources outside of the church that won't make you feel like these questioning or this expression is, is wrong. So I was thinking of things like that, where it's like PFLAG, uh, Trevor Project, like all of these, there's a ton of youth geared LGBTQ or queer resources and compu- communities. That's what I meant. I didn't mean to just free for all, go for it. Again, I would say I've, I've looked at a lot of these organizations you just mentioned, and a lot of them are a bit opposed to religious organizations. So if you're an individual going to these resources, be aware that they may speak L of religion. And that's what you're trying to navigate. You're trying to navigate a space where religion's telling you gay is bad. And then you're exploring these supportive gay groups that are saying religion is bad. And so there's a level of discernment that is needed and so that's why I personally always cater to having someone who can help you. Dustin did that for me in a huge chunk when I was in New York City. 
And I appreciated that. But I do agree that you there are these awesome organizations that I just feel like go in it with the, the best discernment you can, because I don't think the church is wrong in its literature 100%. And I don't think these organizations are right in their literature 100%. Um, but I do agree with what Dustin said. It is important to go to different places because they're going to give you the full picture of what's going to be the right thing and experience for you. And so I think that's really important. You need to be well-rounded no matter what sources you look at, because no one source is the end-all be-all for anything. So yeah, I guess you helped me clarify that we shouldn't rely solely on the church and we shouldn't rely solely on one or two sources. We should look as many sources as possible. But I, I was saying maybe have the church a little bit down on the list when it comes to these sort of topics, because again, they're just, they're, they need some work through before. Obviously they haven't worked through even the terminology and contradictory. Like it looks like a bunch of different people wrote a bunch of each paragraph I'm talking about, especially the transgender and even like the same sex attraction, like those sort of sections of the handbook, one paragraph to the next says something different and has a different tone to it. So I think there's some things that they need to work out, but that's just where I'm coming from. And then what I have to say, like back, to this particular paragraph that we just finished reading and went on a huge like discussion on, which is good. I just want to say, as a queer person of faith, I know that the uncertainty of my future can be unsettling. In times where I feel lost, I must remember where I came from and that my unique experience does not exclude me from returning to my heavenly parents. So that's one thing that I was thinking about is the proclamation of family begins with, we all came from heavenly parents. We all deserve to continue to have that love going forward in life. And every time I don't see myself reflected in like a bit of church literature, I was going to say doctrine, but this isn't doctrine because it's not. Uh, It's just a resource at this point in time. If I don't see myself reflected, that in no way excludes me from the plan of salvation because we don't know what the future holds. So that's that's kind of where I, I come from. And so I think we're on to the next paragraph, correct? In the pre-mortal realm, spirits, sons, and daughters knew and worshipped God as their eternal father and accepted his plan by which his children could obtain a physical body and gain earthly experience to progress towards perfection and ultimately realize their divine destiny as heirs of eternal life. The divine plan of happiness enables family relationships to perpetuate it beyond the grave. Sacred ordinances and covenants available in holy temples make it possible for individuals to return to the presence of God and for families to be united eternally. This this paragraph, the only problem I have is the switching between spirits and daughters and then children. They use children like twice. Why not just use it throughout the whole thing? I don't know if they're trying to add variants to their language, but I also I think they're very specific in using that too. But if you're using children and it's more inclusive, continue using it. So that way it gives more opportunity for others to see themselves in this document. So that's really my only problem with this particular paragraph is the flip-flopping between the binary use of children and then children as an all-inclusive term. I personally like this section a lot myself, partially because it talks about the journey we've been with Heavenly Father. As part of my relationship with Heavenly Father, I am a firm believer, and I know to be true that we existed with Him in the pre-mortal existence. In what form, perhaps, is a question mark for me sometimes, but I do believe that that journey we've had with him started before we were even here on Earth, and it helps understand a lot of the trials and adversity that we face here on Earth as queer individuals or in any other identity we have, whether we're queer or not, um, with the struggles of that plan. And it just helps me reassure that his plan in the end is one of happiness, and it involves families. Uh, What that family looks like or that happiness can take forms is different. But I do believe that. And I also do believe in the concept of fraternity. And I think this paragraph really helps me highlight that for me and understanding that the love I have for my family, hopefully one day for a partner um, and for my friends is eternal. So I do really, really appreciate this as a part of the proclamation itself. Okay, so moving on to the next paragraph, it says... The first commandment that God gave to Adam and Eve pertained to their potential for parenthood as husband and wife. We declare that God's commandment for his children to multiply and replenish the earth remains in force. We further declare that God has commanded that the sacred powers of procreation are to be employed only between man and woman, lawfully wedded as husband and wife. This one particularly, I'm up until the commanding of procreation between man and wife in lawfully wedded. So I'm all on board until then. And then all I have to say is hopefully in the future, this can be rewritten. 
in a way that's more encompassing. Because right now it's very locked in. There's not much I can say other than hope for the future <laughs> sort of thing. Like, what are your thoughts? I don't know. This one's interesting for me. And I agree. It's mostly the last line because the powers of procreation with the way science has evolved, you don't really even need a man or a woman anymore. So that's interesting in the sense of that science thinks of it. But I have, all, I, even though I myself, I'm not the best follower of this, I have been a huge respecter of being a lawfully wedded between partners, not necessarily husband and wife, right? Before doing it, before having sex or, or, or any of that. And I think it's just the beauty of connecting with someone. But at the same time, I've read a lot of papers and literature that says that that repression sometimes creates a lot of trauma for individuals. I know that I read an article in regards to women in the church, uh, excuse me, those that were assigned female at birth and express themselves as women struggle because they've been told their whole life to like protect themselves from sex and not to have sex and to be chaste and everything. Then when it comes to actually having sex, they feel repressed and it's not an enjoyable experience for them anymore because they have to deconstruct all this mentality of sex is not good, even though now they're married and they follow all the rules, but they spend so much time in that mentality that it takes a minute to walk away from it. And by a minute, I mean a lot of work. And so for them, it takes a while before sex becomes the enjoyable, beautiful experience it was always meant to be. So I think this loses out on the opportunity that we have to educate our members in better understanding the experience that sex is. I think the church is starting to change. This is the four parts that I find interesting that the document, this part hasn't changed, but the conversations around sex and the way we educate our members actually has started to change in the way we we talk about sex, the sex, the act of having sex. and it hasn't really changed in the proclamation, but it has changed in the way we talk in the church about it. So that's kind of interesting to me how like the document itself is stagnant, but the conversations have continued to progress. So I don't know if those conversations will eventually prompt an amendment to the proclamation or if it's going to continue to remain the same. So I'll be interesting to see what happens there. Yeah, same. I agree too, because I feel like sex is such a taboo subject within the church and it doesn't need to be because if if they talk about it in a, a progressive and like a pro-sex way saying that it's a lovely way to express intimacy between your partner and it's a way for you to procreate that sort of thing and there's not so much shame associated with it like i think it would be a lot healthier because i know even me growing up like any form of intimacy meaning like a hug or anything like that from anybody I felt uncomfortable because if I felt comfort in a, a man hugging me, I felt like that was wrong. But then if I felt comfort from a woman hugging me, it made me feel uncomfortable because I still was struggling with like what my sexuality was. And I just like, this makes me feel uncomfortable. Does it make me feel uncomfortable because I don't like it or because I'm supposed to not have any form of intimacy? So yeah, so I really think we need to be more sex positive when discussing it in the church and not have so much taboo or shame associated with it, because then we can also talk about like safe practices and that sort of thing too, because I know at least for me and a lot of other queer friends that I've had, once you kind of go on your Jimmy journey and you explore your sexuality, it's almost like you have nothing to refer to. So you end up dabbling in some unsafe practices because you don't know anybody. You weren't taught about contraception. You weren't taught about this. You weren't taught about getting tested. You weren't taught about all these things where that should be included because everyone can benefit from it because there may come a time where you need to. So yeah, I think we should just be sex positive all around because it helps everyone in the end, both with stigmas, both with shame, and then also overall health. Um, so I think you're next, right? Or is it? Oh, yeah, yeah, you're next. Do you mind if I read these two together? Yeah, I don't know. I don't mind. Go for it. <laughs> we declare the means by which mortal life is created to be divinely appointed. We affirm the sanctity of life and of its importance in God's eternal plan. Husband and wife have a solemn responsibility to love and care for each other and for their children. Children are an heritage of the Lord. Parents have a sacred duty to rear their children in love and righteousness to provide for their physical and spiritual needs and to teach them to love and serve one another, observe the commandments of God and be law-abiding citizens wherever they live. Husbands and wives, mothers and fathers will be held accountable before God for the discharge of these obligations. I'll be honest, I love this. I'm a huge proponent of protecting children and valuing them 
above an adult life. I know it does make it very clear husband and wife. They repeat that a lot. Uh, but I do appreciate that it does cover the power of the sanctity of life. I think the whole a political conversation around pro-choice and pro-life is very interesting. And I think this is designed to navigate that for sure. But in addition, I also love that it brings the idea of the laws to protect children, the accountability that parents will be held to, and just the, the beauty that children are and the importance that Heavenly Father puts on them. I am a full-blown believer that children should be respected, protected, loved, cared for, provided safety for. And I think this does a good job of capturing all that. Again, with some political undertones and such, but I still appreciate their existence in the proclamation to the family. Yeah, exactly. And I think this paragraph, the one specifically talking about the duties of parents, I think is the most important paragraph in this because I think is the one that people overlook. It's the one when people are picking and choosing how they're going to weaponize this, they conveniently leave this one out. And If you are weaponizing this document to say anybody who's living a queer lifestyle is against God and against like the word of this proclamation, if you are doing that and you're using it as justification for like turning your back on your queer child or kicking your queer child out, you are definitely in violation of this. The kicking the queer child out is questionable when it comes to this justifying that because this doesn't outright say kick your child to the curb if they're queer. But this blatantly says that if you do anything that puts your child's safety in jeopardy, you are in violation of this document. And I'm going to read it again, the parts that people really need to pay attention to if they're using this document as a weapon. It says, parents have a sacred duty to rear their children in love and righteousness, to provide for their physical and spiritual needs and to teach them to love and serve one another, observe the commandments of God, and be law-abiding citizens wherever they live. And then I changed this. I combined, because they used parents before. Why don't they just use parents again? Because then it's more inclusive rather than saying mother, father. So I said parents will be held accountable before God for the discharge of these obligations. So right then and there, if you turn your back on your queer child, you kick them out, you disown them, and you still think that you're a member of the church in full, what is it? Full member, what is it called? Full high standing, full standing. Uh, I'd like you to read this against sir, ma'am, other, or whoever, because No, you can't fully say that you are a Christ-following, Christ-loving member of the church if you turn your back on your queer child or turn your back on anybody who's queer because you're treating someone else this way is an extension of how you treat your own sort of thing. So I just want to really make that clear. And then I said, as a queer person of faith, I feel it is my sacred duty to help raise the future generations to be more inclusive. I believe it is our divine mission to break the cycle of exclusion and bring us that much closer to Zion. And then one one more thought on this too is in the manual, the very first little paragraph leading into the discussion. So right after it says the proclamation or the family proclamations of the world in the little italicized paragraph, it says, President Dallin H. Oak said, I believe our attitude toward and use, let me emphasize that use of the proclamation of the family is a test for this generation. I pray for all Latter-day Saints to stand firm in that test. I think those who use the proclamation as a weapon against the queer community is failing this test because they aren't looking at that particular paragraph that says, if you act like this, you're in violation of this. So I think Dallin H. Oaks, I know that wasn't his intention, but I think it's a really good call to action as well. Are you failing this test? If you're using the proclamation of the family as a weapon, yes, you're failing this test. And I think you need to go back to to studying. So that's that's what I have to say about that particular paragraph. And I think it mentions it again about the duties of the parents. So it's it's big. So I don't know why people choose. Actually, I do know why people choose because it doesn't fit their agenda. So I just want to continue bringing to the forefront all this negativity towards your queer children makes you just as bad as what you're accusing your queer children of being. Agreed. You ready to read the next one? It's a hefty one. 
Yeah. So here we go. Uh, let me scroll to it. Cause I kind of got, Oh, Oh, the family is ordained of God. Is that the one? Yeah. So the family is ordained of God marriage between man and woman is essential to his eternal plan. Children are entitled to birth within the bonds of matrimony and to be reared by a father and a mother who honor marital vows with complete fidelity. Happiness in family life is most likely to be achieved when founded upon the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. Successful marriages and families are established and maintained on principles of faith, prayer, repentance, forgiveness, respect, love, compassion, work, and wholesome recreational activity. That that seemed a little weird. <laughs> that seemed a little out, out, uh, out of left field. But anyways. I'll continue by divine, the recreational activities. That's the part I was talking about, but by but divine, by divine design, fathers are to preside over their families in love and righteousness and are responsible to provide the necessities of life and protection for their families. Mothers are primarily responsible for the nurture of their children in the sacred responsibilities. Fathers and mothers are obligated to help one another as equal partners, disability, death, or other circumstances may necessitate individual adaptation. Extended families should lend support when needed. That was a hefty one. It was a roller coaster of agreeing, disagreeing, modify modifications needed. Like that's how I felt. Do you, do you want to give your thoughts first or? So for this one, my, like, I want to say, like, everything that was said here, I feel like we should take and apply to any type of family. It's interesting because the dialogue, I keep coming back to this, but the dialogue current, currently going on in the church, it, it, it contradicts this a little bit. Because one thing that has currently been in dialogue is how the family commission doesn't capture the different types of families that exist, right? Or individuals who are single or or single parents, but it does say kind of capturing that it says disability, death, or other circumstances may necessitate individual adaptations, and that's like really the only sentence that exists to capture like as an umbrella for people who don't fall in the category. And again, this actually this description of fathers and mothers is actually a gendering. Because like they're saying that this is specifically how gender is supposed to behave, the construct of it, and they're constructing it. But obviously, a lot of this has shifted and changed. There's a lot of the church that still follows this. But I'd be interesting because there's a lot more mothers who are now working and they are the breadwinners. And there's a lot of conversations in regards to... I understand that they did this to have a dialogue about the current conversation that's going on about everybody being equal, men and women being equal. And they're saying like they can't. Because they're literally born with different capabilities. And this is how they've been ordained. Men do this. Or those, excuse me, fathers do this. Mothers do this. But really the conversation going on in the world is that men and women should be equitable. Right? But in the church, they're using the word equal here. And it's what they're trying to contest, I think, with this statement. Personally, but again, I think a lot of the messaging here as a queer individual, I love, especially the idea of successful marriages and families are established and maintained on principles of faith, prayer, repentance, forgiveness, respect, love, compassion, work, wholesome recreational activities. And I love that. And I love that extended families should lend support when needed, meaning that it is a big village kind of endeavor to have a family. It's not just the two individuals or if we're including polyamorous love more than two individuals, of course, as well. But yeah, so those are my thoughts. What about yours? So I'm I'm good with the beginning where it says the family is ordained of God. Love it. Marriage between the man and a woman is essential to his eternal plan. That's only one form of marriage. It's not excluding other ones. It's just calling out one. So I just want to look at it from that way. So I'm halfway on board for that one. Uh, children are entitled to birth within the bonds of matrimony and to be reared by a father and mother who honor marital vows. And okay, that's I'm on board with that. All children are entitled, which means they should be given the opportunity. But again, it's only calling out one sort of parenting, and it's it doesn't outrightly exclude. It excludes by omission, but it's not outright like saying this is the only thing that they're entitled to. Again, that's what I'm reading it as. And then I'm on board for happiness and family life is mostly likely to achieve that. I'm all good. The first kind of meh I'm at is the the use of the word successful. And I think that's just the word choice. Like what defines success? What me makes it successful? It's like, I'm thinking of it like a, like work. What defines how successful you are in like work? Is it how much money you make? Is it how happy you are? Like that sort of thing. I think they go in defining it, but not really defining it at the same time sort of thing. Like it, it, successful is a very subjective word, but that's just me. That's just me having a problem with that word, but it's neither here nor there. So I'm like, man, I'm halfway on board for that. So here is where I have the major problem is where they divide the gender 
sort of norms and the gender responsibilities where I think what they should just do is just group parents together because both parents should be or single parents or the parents. So whatever form you have, the caregiver to children, whoever it may be, whatever capacity, this is their responsibility. So parents or caregivers, I guess, are to preside over their families in love and righteousness and are responsible to provide the necessities of life and protection of their families. Again, parents or caregivers are primarily responsible for the nurture of their children. And these sacred responsibilities, parents or caregivers are obligated to help one another. Yeah. So I think if they want to be current and preach a little bit more of what they practice is they should now start combining those roles together. Because again, like you said, again, it's a contradiction. Like right away they said, oh, but they should be equal within the family. But you just defined unique roles that one has to do over the other. Whether you said that outright or not, by you bucketing them into father does this, mother does this, you're, you're defining what you think they should be doing. So I think what they need to do is, again, families have changed or traditional families, how they look, have changed. So it's basically caregivers, parents, whatever, who's ever like head of household or whatever, they are responsible for this as well. So that's my thoughts on that. We ready for the next one? Yep. I'm going to actually read the last two together. Are you okay with that? Yeah, go for it. We warn that individuals who violate covenants of chastity, who abuse spouse or offspring, or who fail to fulfill family responsibilities will one day stand accountable before God. Further, we warn that the disintegration of the family we bring upon individuals, communities, and nations, the calamities foretold by ancient and modern prophets. We call upon responsible citizens and officers of government everywhere to promote those measures designed to maintain and strengthen the family as the fundamental unit of society. And I'm going to just finish the last part. This this proclamation was read by President Gordon B. Hinckley as part of his message at the General Relief Society meeting held September 23rd, 1995 in Salt Lake City, Utah. I do find it fascinating. Can I say that this was read at a Relief Society meeting and not a general meeting? Like, I wonder why, but that's neither here nor there in that case. I do want to say that the part that I find the most interesting is the last line, designed to maintain strength in the family as the fundamental unit of society. I do understand that this whole the whole proclamation of family has just stipulated what is considered by the church a family and who is not considered a family, which again, for me, it omitted a lot of people who are single parents, who are divorced parents, who are all across the board, which I think the church has acknowledged and continues to acknowledge through a lot of its different changes that it's made. But again, it hasn't updated this document to reflect the, the conversation. I have. So it makes it seem like they're not growing in any shape or form. But I love that it invites governments to strengthen the family as the fundamental unit of society. And the governments are actually doing that. The governments are also acknowledging that the expanded definition of what family means, which means queer couples, it means polyamorous couples. It means mixed race couples, because that was in uh, until the Lovings case, the Virginia Lovings case, that wasn't an option. And obviously, this came way after the Lovings case. But still, it fascinates me that we include that statement there because the governments are doing this. They are strengthening the family as the fundamental unit of society, but they're leaving it open to include us the queer individuals as well. But the church in this statement were basically saying it in a way to almost exclude it which is sad because I know you brought up Prop 8, I believe it's what it's called. And a lot of this is when it was weaponized was during that time. And obviously in other policies that have existed as well, like the 2015 policy that came about. And so this, the proclamation has been used in those moments where it has excluded the queer community completely. It wasn't even like hinted, it was intentional. And it's just sad. So I think this is what all of this brings to mind. I think for me as well, it is beautiful in the sense of it saying that we, whether you're queer or heterosexual, you will be held accountable by Heavenly Father for the actions you take as a member of your family. And like you were saying, if you're the person who's kicking out your kid because they're queer, Heavenly Father has a place for you as well. Yeah, I'm not sure it's by his side or even through the gates, but he's got a place for you. <laughs> Kidding. <laughs> but anyways, the only thing I have to add to that too, is I'm glad that you brought up where it was spoken and when it was spoken, because what I learned in college, I took a fashion forecasting class and I'll tell you why this is relevant is in order for us to do fashion forecasting. I think we, it was, when was I, I was, it was 2010 and we were going to forecast the color 
and fashion transfer 2012. And in order for us to do that, we had to go back 30 years because we took the socioeconomic approach to it, which means we go back 30 years and we gather 30 years of data for political, sociological, (laughs) I don't know if I said that right, economics, color trends, like all these things that influence trends and colors and all that stuff. And so we went back and we looked at things and then we used that to project what will happen in 2012 by looking at the trends, seeing like, how is the nation feeling? How, what was going on in the world? What was the politics? What was this? What was pop culture? Like all that stuff to see if we could kind of predict the future of trends and stuff like that too. So this is why it's relevant. This is what I learned from it is like any sort of document, whether it's history, whatever you need to look at it from who wrote it and when they wrote it to kind of decipher kind of why they wrote it. There's a reason why they say they wrote it, but then there's also other reasons why they probably wrote it that isn't directly (laughs) up front and like up in your face. So this is what I did is I quickly just Googled LGBTQ 1995 just to see what was kind of going on at that time for queer individuals to see what may have influenced the the writing of this, which puts it into context, which is is always good to do when you're looking at a document like this. So I typed it in and it took one of the first pages it took me to was on Wikipedia and it says 1995 in LGBTQ rights. And so I'm going to just read some events. So again, this was September 1995. So I'm going to read you some U.S. events that are related to LGBTQ rights, and you can kind of get a sense of maybe why they they felt it was urgent or necessary to write it when they did. And again, you, you're looking at who wrote it, a bunch of elderly, cisgender, heterosexual men. So that's another sort of lens. So here are some events leading up to it in 1995 in the United States regarding queer rights. So it goes... Beginning in January, January 19th, it says the District of Columbia Court of Appeals rules in Dean versus District of Columbia that the district's human rights ordinance barring discrimination based on sexual orientation does not guarantee a right to same-sex marriage. And then in March, in Abel versus United States of America, the first challenge to Don't Ask, Don't Tell, District Judge Eugene Nickerson rules that the provision of the 1993 law barring LGBTQ military personnel from saying they're LGBTQ infringes on their First Amendment and Fifth Amendment rights. So here we go. The breakdown of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. August 2nd, U.S. President Bill Clinton signs Executive Order 12968, which bans discrimination based on sexual orientation as it establishes uniform policies for allowing government employees access to classified information. And then the next month is when we had the declaration. So I think they're seeing this gearing up of LGBTQ rights and I think they had to kind of step in. That's just my own sort of <laughs> sort of take on it. But we went from one case being one, but that doesn't mean they could have same-sex marriage, to a little bit more inclusion and acceptance of certain things. Like the laws started turning towards the right, meaning the right side of history, that I think they they need to step in and kind of do their thing. So that's that's just kind of what I got out of looking just what was happening in 1995. I could be completely off base and say this had nothing to do with it, but I really think that in order for them to establish their stance and not have to defend certain things, because who knows what the next court case was going to be, I think this was a way of saying this is our stance. So if anyone's confused, this is this is how we stand. So I think that's one of the uses of the proclamation of the family. But anyway, so we've reached the end. Any sort of like outstanding thoughts in regards to the document before we take a break? None for me. I think I've shared most of the ones I had. Okay. So I guess right now is a good place to take a short break. And welcome back from the break. You're listening to Love is Spoken Queer. And Renee and I have just finished discussing the family, a proclamation to the world through the queer perspective of future. And during the break, I actually looked up the matrix to see exactly what (laughs) I was talking about earlier. And it turns out that it was written, produced, and directed by trans sisters. So it's uh, Lana and Lily Wachowski. I think I'm pronouncing their names right. But yes, they directed, wrote, and produced The Matrix. So 
it is sort of relevant because we are a queer podcast and they were a queer rated developed movie. So yeah, so there we go. I did my little bit of homework during the break. So Renee, <laughs> based on our discussion today, what do you feel called to do? To continue to love my everyone and show them support as part of my big, 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 big Heavenly Father family that they're a part of. I'm going to keep it as simple as that. Well, I feel called to not be afraid of this document anymore because we just went paragraph by paragraph and kind of worked through our thought processes regarding it. And I think I came to an okay place with being able to discuss it openly and honestly with those around me. So I think I'm in a good place to have those discussions going forward. I hope listeners out there, you are in a good place to have this discussion coming up here or yeah, let's see if I, I'm going to get this episode out. So that way you guys can use it. You people, you listeners, sorry, I did not mean to generalize and gender those listening. You listeners, you can maybe use this as a resource as you prepare for the lesson this coming Sunday. Cause I do know in Sunday school, this is the lesson. It's going to be the proclamation of the family. I know those of you that are listening are of the queer community or have those you love in the queer community. So I think it'd be a great resource to not fear this document as much as it's been feared in the past, but to look at it from a different point of view and try to find understanding with those around you regarding it. So that's what I feel called to do. And listeners out there, if you want to share your experiences in regards to the proclamation of the family, some ideas to help talk about it, some ideas to help teach about it to those out there, or just thoughts in general on it, please feel free to send them to lovespokenqueer at gmail.com, or you can send us a direct message on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. And before we go, Renee, do you have any words of wisdom you'd like to leave with the listeners to take with them throughout the rest of this week and into the weekend? Just kind of what you were commenting on is this document can be really heavy sometimes to reflect on and read. I know for me, it is always is even after we've broken it down. For me, it's less fear and more just being in the right state of mind and emotional state to be able to learn from it, because I think you can gain a lot from it. So use it as an instrument to guide your path. It has beautiful knowledge in it, while at the same time, it does have some hurt for wordings in it. Obviously, I sit in a different point of privilege where some of the words are not as hurtful as it could be for other members of the queer community. But I say that it is still a beautiful document. And I think in some ways, it is still inspired by Heavenly Father, even if the wording is very outdated and not as inclusive or inviting as it could be. So I just want to share those thoughts. Thank you, Renee. And the last thing we have to do is thank our listeners for listening. And remember to always be true to you. And love one another. Until next time. Bye. You've just listened to another episode of Love is Spoken Queer. If you want to join in on the conversation, feel free to send us an email at our Gmail account, which is lovespokenqueer at gmail.com, or send us a direct message on our social channels. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you really love our episodes and our show, make sure that you rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. That is the fastest way for us to share our words with everyone out there. So again, thank you for listening.